Our sermon this morning is on Noah and the flood from Genesis 4 through 10. So we're going to we're going to cover quite a bit of ground in the Bible today, so we're not going to read it all up top, but we are going to just kind of read through it as we, as we go. Noah and the Flood, classic Bible story, right? This is, uh, you know, I imagine that we're all familiar with it. It's probably one of the first stories that you heard from the Bible as a child. Every illustrated children's Bible has Noah and the Flood. It kind of lends itself to that, that medium, movies about it. Um, Noah and the Flood is an off-debated topic with, uh, like, apologists and opponents of Christianity. Uh, Lots of non-Christians say that the Flood story can't be true because it's just outlandish. It's kind of fantastic, and so it's something that you would easily dismiss and say, that's evidence that the Bible is a story, it's a myth, and not not real. Uh, There are entire organizations that, you know, dedicate their entire ministry to to the, the flood and the ark, they, you know, one, one organization built a full-size replica of the ark, and it's like a museum. You can go there and kind of take tours uh, inside of it and things like that. Um, so it's, it's part of our kind of cultural, you know, the zeitgeist, right, the, the Noah and the ark. Most of us are familiar with it. I want to take, take a few minutes this morning and just consider this story of Noah and the flood uh, and kind of think about what it means in terms of redemptive history, what it means, uh, like how the story of Noah and the flood fit into the overall story of the Bible, how they fit into the story of Genesis and what Moses is trying to communicate with them. Um, and I want us to just consider what the story of Noah and the flood means for us as Christians, what it, what, what it looks like for us to apply this story to our lives and to our, our souls. So I'm just going to pray. Uh, and then we're just going to go through and we're going to kind of read chunks of scripture as we, as we go through from Genesis chapters 4 through 10. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, we pray that we would uh, never grow tired um, of your word, that we would never take your word for granted. Lord, I pray that we would never forget how incredible and how awesome it is to have a Bible, right, where we can read and hear and, and consider and, and uh, meditate on the words of God, where we can gather together with other believers to listen to your word and to meditate on your word and to apply your word. It's a great privilege, and I pray, Lord, that we would never forget that or, or overlook that reality. Please bless our time as we read and study and meditate this morning, and please work in our hearts through it. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so stories on Noah and the flood, but uh, we left off last time on Genesis chapter 3, just after Adam and Eve in the garden had eaten the forbidden fruit and been cast out of the garden. God placed a cherubim, an angel at the entrance of the garden, to effectively say, you sinful humanity cannot come back into the garden and be in the presence of God. Holy God, sinful man, there's a divider between the two. You are outside of Eden. You are east of Eden. That's where we left off there. So we're going to just briefly look at um, Genesis chapters 4 and 5 before we get to the, to the flood. But first, we're going to meet Cain and Abel. Adam knew his wife Eve. She created and born a son. And she said, I have gotten a man with the help of, of the Lord. And she bore his brother Abel. So two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground. So, you know, both, you know, you know one works with livestock. The other works with, with crops and plants. Verse 3, in the course of time, 
Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So, uh, I mean, you can kind of, uh, you know, search these, like, kind of watch the the biblical theology unfold with Cain and Abel. Look in the New Testament. What we're going to see is that Cain, or or that that Abel is a righteous man. Matthew 23, verse 35 says, Matt says, says Abel is righteous. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 says Abel is righteous. It says righteous. He's a godly man. He makes a sacrifice in accordance with his righteousness and God accepts his sacrifice. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 says that Cain was wicked and he was evil. So Cain is evil and he brings a sacrifice out of his wickedness and out of his evil deeds and God does not accept it. Verse 5, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Very similar to what God said to Eve um, after she had had sinned, right? And and, um, uh, part part of the curse to Eve. So God basically says, Cain... Sin has uh, infected humanity. Sin has, has kind of wormed its way in to the hearts of humanity. And, and now uh, it started with eating a piece of fruit, but it's going to get worse and worse and worse. It's going to manifest in entitlement and anger and rage and violence. It wants to kill you. It wants to dominate you. It wants to enslave you. So you have to be violent with your sin. You have to kill sin. You have to overcome sin. You have to make sure that sin does not have its way with you in your life. God is is kind of warning Cain of the, the sinfulness of sin and the disastrous effects that sin is going to work in his life if he does not master it and overcome it. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So it takes all of, takes one generation for sin to, to worm its way into the human heart and then to start escalating in terms of depravity and go from eating a piece of fruit to murdering another human being. In verses 9 through 11, God confronts Cain. Cain acts just like his father Adam did, deflecting and kind of feigning ignorance. I'm not sure what you're, what you're talking about. Then God says, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth in verse 12. And Cain in verse 13 says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You've driven me away today. You've made me a fugitive and a, and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me is going to kill me. So God says, you're, you're not going to be stable. You're not going to have a home. You're not going to have a, 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 you know, a, a city, a place of stability. You're going to be a wanderer. And Cain says, if, I, if I'm kind of cast out to wander by myself, anyone who finds me is going to kill me. And God uh, says, not so. Verse 15, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone uh, who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of, of Eden. So God gives Cain this special, like this war, a, a tattoo or a mark or something on his body that warns any would-be attacker that says, don't, like, Cain is, is kind of cast out of my presence. He is relegated to being a wanderer for his whole life, but you are not to hurt him. You are not to kill him. And if anyone touches him, 
I, God, am going to visit my vengeance, my wrath, my judgment on you seven times what you do on on Cain. And then just a few generations later, when we get down to verse 19 in chapter 4, we meet one of the descendants, the great-great-great-grandchild of Cain uh, named, named Lamech. Uh, um, yeah, verse 19, Lamech. So, so Lam, uh, Cain, several generations, then we meet Lamech, and we're going to see kind of how sin is continuing to affect and, and kind of escalate and to kind of uh, neutralize humanity and kind of make them further and further from God. Lamech took two wives. It's the first instance that we see of polygamy or adultery in the Bible. Lamech is kind of the, the pioneer, the founder of, of uh, that form of sexual sin. Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. But Lamech, uh, as we're going to see, so it's, it's not just that, that Lamech marries two women, which would be which would be bad enough, right, to kind of, to kind of depart from God's intended uh, vision and plan and prescription for marriage, which is one man, one woman, married together, covenant faithfulness for their lives. It's bad enough that kind of Lamech departs from that, but it's not just that he practices adultery and polygamy. Um, but we'll see as we read more about Lamech. This guy's a, he's kind of a creep. Uh, the, the word took in verse 19, Lamech took two wives. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at the story of David and Bathsheba. And we kind of looked at the word, it said uh, David took Bathsheba and, and lay with her. And the, the word there is, like, it's a Hebrew word that means to seize or to capture, but also to steal or to, to take captive. And when the prophet Nathan was talking about uh, what David did to Bathsheba, he didn't just say that he took a willing participant and, you know, committed adultery with her. He said that it's like, you know, David effectively stole and killed and devoured an innocent lamb, right? The, the, the story that he tells kind of pictures an innocent lamb that's stolen and devoured by a rich uh, man. Well, that word taken in uh, 2 Samuel 11 is the same word that says Lamech took two wives. It's to Lamech seized or he stole or he captured two wives. So, uh, I mean, it might be that Lamech just had a, a healthy, normal, consensual marriage with these two women, or it might have been that he kidnapped them and that he trafficked them and that they were, uh, you know, he kind of took them as his property against their will, which seems to make sense given what he says uh, in verse 23. Lamech uh, uh, went to his two wives and he said, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So he says, you know, some, some guy uh, committed a relatively minor offense against me. He hit me, right? He, he whatever, he, he, you know, hit my car in the parking lot. He, he brushed up against me in the, in the grocery store and I murdered him. I killed him in broad daylight. And this almost sounds like, uh, like a, I mean, he's saying this to his wives almost as if it's a warning for them. Like, you guys need to know how violent and how, uh, you, you need to know how afraid you should be of me, how dangerous I am. Some guy hit me and I killed him in response to it. So let that be a lesson to you. Don't cross me, don't disobey me, or I will kill you too. And then he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. So he's not like, you know, 
Like Lamech doesn't kill this guy and then try to cover it up. He's not ashamed of his behavior. He's not, uh, you know, he doesn't want to not, he, he is proud of it, right? He is, is reveling in it. He's, he's celebrating it. And Cain says, or I'm sorry, Lamech says, remember Cain, right? Remember my great, great, great grandfather Cain. He was a wimp. He, like Cain uh, was cast out into the wilderness and he said, God, I'm going to be killed. I'm afraid. I don't want to go out there all by myself. And God had to kind of say, if you hurt Cain, I will take my vengeance on you. And Lamech says, like, I I don't need God to avenge me. In fact, uh, I I will take vengeance. If you hurt me, I will take my own vengeance on you. I don't need God to take vengeance on you. And in fact, my vengeance is way worse than God's. If God said, I will avenge anyone seven times what they do to Cain, Lamech says, I will avenge anyone 77 times what they do to me. So he basically says, if you think the wrath of God is bad, that's nothing compared to the wrath of Lamech. I am a bad man. I will hurt and kill anyone who crosses me or who gets in my, my way. So you can see the, the, just the, the downward spiral, the devolution of humanity throughout the first four chapters of Genesis. Right? Starts by eating uh, a piece of fruit and kind of devolves into fratricide, murder, violence, pride, right? Standing uh, defiant and rebellious against God, taking advantage of people who are, who are weaker. Like things have gotten really bad really fast. And then in verse 5, we can kind of see how that continues to play itself out. And verse 5 has, a, is, it kind of feels similar to Ch- Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 1 has a lot, it's kind of a poetic repetition. And God created, and God saw, and it was good, and God, and it was morning and evening, the, the fifth day, the first day, second day. Right, there's kind of this poetic repetition of goodness and beauty and glory in Genesis 1. And, and the, what we're going to see repeated in Genesis chapter 5 over and over, and he died. Right? Here's this guy. He lived this many years. He had a kid. Then he lived this, and he died. Verse, you know, verse five, and he died. Verse four, then there's Adam. Verse eight, Adam died. Verse seven, there's Enosh, and he died, and he died. And like you can see at the end of of every single paragraph, almost without exception, is and he died. So the, the author is kind of setting up. Humanity is getting worse and worse. Sin's effects on humanity are, are destroying it and crushing it. People are dying. That's just the, the you know, it's kind of this, you're just on a treadmill of, of born, sin, rebel, suffer, die. And then in chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intention of the thought of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So God says, right, this is a father speaking to his children. This is a father thinking about his children. I wish you had never been born, right? I love you. I care about you. I brought you into this world. I've been nurturing you and bringing you up and raising you, but you're so bad that I regret that I ever created you. And God is grieved. Verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So mankind at this point has descended as far as they could possibly go. 
Sin has run its course as far as it could possibly go. It's getting worse and worse. Right? Genesis 1, God saw that it was good. Genesis 6, God saw that it was bad. It was no longer sustainable. And essentially, starting in Genesis chapter 6, God is going to undo everything that he did in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapters 6 and 7 kind of serve, the, they, they, when you look at the narrative and you look at the, the way the story kind of works and you look at some of the verbal cues, it's a, it's a decreation. It's, it's God uncreating what he created in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, uh, you know, God creates through his word, by speaking, let there be light. And his word speaks creation into existence. In Genesis 6, God begins his decreation by speaking. Verse 13, I have determined to make an end to all flesh and for all, for all the earth is filled with violence. I will destroy the earth. Go and make yourself an ark of, an ark of gopher wood. Verse 17, behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth and destroy all the flesh, which is uh, the breath of life under heaven. Everything that's on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall come into the ark, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of them into the ark with you, male and female. So judgment is coming. Prepare now. Flee from the wrath of God while you still can. Right? God speaks creation into existence, and now God is speaking creation essentially out of existence. He's unraveling that which he had created in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 20, of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds and every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to keep you alive or, and, and come into you to keep them alive. If that word according to their kinds sounds familiar, it's because that's exactly the language that God used in Genesis chapter 1 when he created all the animals according to their kinds. So God created all the animals according to their kinds and now he's going to decreate all of the animals according to their kind. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord says to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and for forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Verse 7. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, they went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals, animals that are not clean, and of birds, and every creeping thing on the ground, two and two, male and female, went with Noah into the ark as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In Genesis 1, uh, God creates the earth, and then he separates the waters, and he brings the dry land out of the waters in creation. Now that's unraveling. It's going back. And now there are, the waters are now overtaking the dry land in an act of uncreation. Verse 11, the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 17, the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole heaven were all covered. The entirety of the world is covered with water. Verse 21, and all the flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. 
God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Sometimes we think of the flood, the story of Noah and the ark as kind of a, a fun, whimsical, you know, fairy tale. It's, it's plays well with children, right? There's a big boat, lot, right? Go build an arky, arky, right? Whatever, like, you know, it, it feels like Lion King or, or Mary Poppins or something, right? The story of Noah and the ark was not meant to be this fun, lighthearted, you know, fairy tale that we can kind of tell and, and laugh about. It's meant to be dark. It's meant to be disturbing. It's right. The, the story of, of, of Noah's ark is a lot less like, you know, Mary Poppins, and it's a lot more like um, Schindler's List, right? It's, it's supposed to be, it's supposed to give you nightmares. It's supposed to make you very unsettled deep in your soul. There, I mean, Every person on the entire planet dies. Women, children, babies, right? Every single, right? Your friends, your family are all dying. Fear, panic, terror. Your family's dead. Your home is dead. Everything that you've ever known is all swept away. Drowning, dying, violently, painfully. Every single person in the entire planet. Genesis chapters 4 and 5 are about the sinfulness of sin and how sin worms its way in and kind of gets its clutches on the human heart and injects toxins deep into the human heart and starts to escalate the violence and escalate the rebellion. Then chapters 6 and 7 are about the severity of God's judgment and how God will destroy sin in the end, because God is utterly opposed to sin. God does not take sin lightly. He does not casually look the other way as if sin is not a big deal. God hates sin, and God treats it as, as such. Right? God is infinitely holy. God hates sin. God sets himself in opposition to sinners, and he will kill them and destroy. Apart from Christ, apart from the grace that is available to us through Christ in the gospel, God will kill you. God will set himself up against you, make it his mission to destroy you. That's, that's the story. That, that's the message that's supposed to come through in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. God is utterly opposed to sin. God will kill sinners. Be reconciled to God while you still can, lest he kill you and destroy you. That's terrible. Severe judgment falls hard on everyone. But then in Genesis chapter 8, we kind of see, if, if Genesis 6 and 7 is, is this decreation where we see all of these verbal cues that God is undoing what he did in Genesis chapter 1, then Genesis chapter 8 is the story of recreation. And we're going to see similar verbal cues that God is kind of rebuilding and remaking just like he did in Genesis chapter 1. 
right? Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, the Spirit is hovering over the waters. That The word Spirit is, is uh, ruach, which means spirit or breath or wind. And in chapter 8, verse 1, God blew a wind over all the earth, and the waters subsided. Same word as in Genesis 1, uh, wind or breath or spirit. On the second day of creation, uh, God separates the heavens, uh, the waters from the heavens. And in verse 2 here, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were, were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained. So we see water and sky kind of being, being separated. Day 3, God gathers the waters and he causes dry land to appear. In verses 3 through 5, the waters recede from the earth and dry land starts to appear. On day five of creation, God creates the birds. And in chapter six, or in, in chapter eight, verses six through twelve, next slide, we see an account of Noah and these birds. A raven and a and a, a dove are sent out to see if the land is, is dry and is habitable yet. On day six of creation, God makes land animals and human beings. And in verse 15, uh, we're gonna see. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your wives, and bring out every living thing that is with you of all flesh. So here are animals and humans kind of being reintroduced back into creation, right? Moses, the author of Genesis, is intentionally kind of setting up this parallel that God created the world and then God uncreated the world. And now God is recreating the world, retracing his steps from the days of creation right here uh, in the post-flood world world. And what did God do after the six days of creation? Right after he created Adam, he spoke to Adam. He made a covenant with Adam. He gave a a charge or a command to Adam, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing. What does God do with Noah as soon as he comes off of the ark? Noah offers a sacrifice and then God speaks to him and, and, uh, you know, makes a covenant with him in verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down because of every living creature as I have done while the earth remains. All of the seasons will not cease. Chapter nine, verse one. And God blessed Noah and said to them, or God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Exact same thing that God said to Adam in the garden. So God is kind of uh, fashioning the earth, as it were, into a, a second creation, a second e- Eden, a second, let, let's try this over, and God is fashioning Ad- Noah into a second Adam, right? Like, you do what I originally tasked Adam with doing, filling the earth with my glory, filling the earth with image bearers who can take care of it and help you cultivate it. Uh, in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, God tells Adam that he's free to eat any uh, plant that he wants. In Genesis 9, 2 to 3, God says the same thing to Noah, except he adds to it, right? He says, uh, you can eat any plant that you want, plants, animals, but you can also eat any, uh, yeah, any plant, but you can also eat any animal that you want. So meat is, is now uh, on the menu for humanity. You can, you can kill any animal that you want, you can eat it, but verse 5 and 6, don't kill people. You can kill animals and eat them. You can't kill people. I will require a reckoning for any blood that is shed from humanity. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. In verse 6, God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. 
So right after Noah gets off the, the ark, God kind of institutes human government as a means by which uh, there can be order in the world, right? God says, I love you. Uh, I have made you in my image. I am not going to hurt you, and I don't want you to hurt each other. So if anyone hurts someone else, then I want them to be, to be punished in accordance with justice and righteousness. This is kind of the, the initial seeds of the biblical Christian understanding of human government. This is why God calls Christians in Romans 13 and elsewhere in the New Testament to obey the government. Because it was created by God, it was ordained by God, and God uh, has designed the government to be a means by which sin and evil is restrained in humanity so that God's image bearers can live and thrive and flourish and relate to one another without fear of being hurt or killed by one another. And in verse 8 and following, Then God said to Noah and to his sons, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring. And every living creature that is here. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood. Verse 12, then God said, the sign of the covenant that I make between you and me and every living creature. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters will never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and between all flesh. So I, I promise Noah that I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to destroy the world again. Uh, but like if, if, if you see it rain from here on out in the future, if you see flooding or flash floods, let me just assure you, I am not going to destroy the world to the same degree that I did this first time here. And you can remember that promise, but right, when you look up in the sky and you see, you know, light reflect, refracting through water droplets, that, that rainbow that you see is intended to remind you of me. It's intended to remind you of my promises. It's intended to remind you of my faithfulness and my mercy. You don't have to fear my wrath and my judgment anymore. Sin has been dealt with. Uh, sin, m- my wrath has been satisfied. Has it been absorbed by someone else? That's what the, the rainbow is supposed to remind you of every time that you see it. Jerry and I are reading a children's book to uh, Baxter. And this is the way the author portrays this event here. They say, The first thing that God did after the flood was to make another promise. I will never destroy the world again. And like a warrior who puts his bow and arrow away at the end of a great battle, God says, See, I have hung my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was the beginning in God's new, or it was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again, but God was not surprised. He knew that this would happen. And that's why long before the beginning of time, God had another plan, a better plan. 
A plan not to destroy the world, but a plan to rescue the world. A plan to one day send His own Son as the Rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but it would not come down on His people. And it would not come down on His world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down to His people at all. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. The rainbow is God's promise that God's wrath is not going to fall on you. It's going to fall on His Son, Jesus. Now at this point, right, you're, you're thinking, what a, what a great story. Like, what, how, how awesome is this story? It starts so bad. Humanity is just devolving into worse and worse sin. And there's judgment and it's severe and it's terrible. But God's mercy is there in this ark. And they get off and now there's this beautiful rainbow. Let's just stop. Like, and they live happily ever after. Would be a great way to finish the story here. But what we see in the Bible is that Time after time, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, is just uh, human failure, human sin, uh, just continually failing to live up to what God has made. And so uh, if we had any sort of um, illusions that Noah... In fact, some, some people probably, when Noah was born, might have thought that he was the promised uh, Redeemer. According to, to Genesis chapter 5, when he's born, they're like, oh, I think this might be the guy that's going to save us from our sins. Well, if you might have thought that, and if you might have thought based on Noah and his kind of coming through the ark, that he was this kind of uh, righteous man, this perfectly moral man who's going to save humanity, sin is now gone and we're all going to live happily ever after. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and he became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. So the first thing Noah does after the flood, after he sees God's judgment against sin, after he offers a sacrifice, after he receives the promise from God, he just goes and gets drunk and passes out. So Noah's uh, drunk, passed out in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So So this is like this weird... I'm not sure what exactly is happening here, if it's some sort of weird, incestual, inappropriate thing of Ham looking at Noah, or if it's uh, just, just uh, Ham finding Noah in a compromised position, and instead of like discreetly covering him up and kind of covering up his shame and, and kind of keeping the, the wraps on it, instead he like broadcasts it and laughs about it and invites his brothers to join with him in laughing at their, their father, one way or the other. Noah's in the wrong for getting drunk, and Ham is in the wrong for whatever it is that he is, is doing. Verse 23, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, they laid it on their shoulders, they walked backwards, and they covered up the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see his, his nakedness. So Shem and, and Japheth do what Ham should have done in the first place, which was cover up their father, instead of doing what Ham did, which is contribute to it, and laugh about it, and, and kind of make it, make it public, and make sport of his father. So if you were under the pretense that maybe Noah is this righteous man who's going to save humanity from their, from their sin, it doesn't take long at all for Noah to, to, you know, fall right back into sin and depravity and embarrassment immediately after the, the flood is, is over. Then in Genesis chapter 10, we see uh, the, the generations of these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, 
Japheth and his sons, they kind of become these coastland peoples around the Mediterranean Sea. They kind of spread out by clans and nations. Starting in verse 6, Ham and his descendants are... Uh, it's not a very flattering picture of Ham and his descendants. If you read this list, you're going to see a lot of the enemies of Israel that you're going to see throughout the Old Testament. Egypt is in there. Babylon is in there. Assyria is in there. The Philistines are in there. All these Canaanite people groups are in there. Right? We can kind of see the seeds of violence and depravity starting to kind of take root again with this guy Nimrod, uh, from whom would rise all of these violent, barbaric civilizations. We see Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned in there. They're going to come into play uh, later because of their violence and sexual sin. So, so Ham and his descendants are not uh, good guys. This is like a description of the bad guys. And then there's Shem in verse 21 and following, who would provide a line for the Shemites, or who we kind of nail today, uh, you know, call the Semites, people who speak Semitic languages. This is Jewish people, Arabic people, North African, Western uh, Asia. And Shem is the one who eventually provides a line for Abraham. We're going to meet Abraham uh, in in about two weeks. Next week, we're going to look at the Tower of Babel. Then we're going to meet Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And that's it. That's Genesis 4 through 10. Right? Takes us from Adam and Eve all the way to the Tower of, of Babel. And these, these chapters are kind of here, situated, it, it's almost like the, the, the book of Genesis is kind of uh, on fast forward for the most part when you go through these uh, genealogies, and then occasionally the fast forward stops, and you just kind of zoom in on one generation, and you see, and you meet this person, you hear their story. And the, the story of Noah is meant to kind of remind us of a few of these pivotal gospel truths, right? The, the sinfulness of sin, that, that, that sin starts small through, through just, you know, eating an, a piece of fruit in a garden, but it gets really bad really quick. Gives way to violence, murder, revenge, selfishness, pride, rebellion, corruption, right? Every intention of the human heart is evil continually. So the sinfulness of sin, the severity of God's judgment, Right? God responds to the sin of humanity with, with terrible, awful wrath. Right? God is utterly opposed to sin and sinners. His judgment falls hard on sinners. They cannot survive it. They are crushed by it, destroyed by it. Right? This is the impending reality of every person who sins against God. You have incited the wrath of a holy God. You have invited the punishment of a holy God. There is no escape. God is going to judge you. You are going to stand before God. You're going to give an account for your life. And He is going to cast you out of His presence for all of eternity. And you will have to pay the just penalty for your sin forever and ever. The sinfulness of sin. The severity of God's judgment. But also, the sufficiency of God's grace. Tell me, if, tell me if this story sounds familiar. Humanity sins against God. God sets Himself against humanity. God rains down His terrible judgment on all of humanity. Every single person on the entire planet is crushed by the wrath of God, except in the midst of all that, God makes a way of 
salvation. God provides an ark. God provides a wooden structure and calls His people to hide inside this wooden structure that God made, that God provided. If you, if you enter into God's vessel of mercy through the singular door that God has provided there, if you hide inside of God's appointed sanctuary of salvation, then the wrath of God is going to fall down on everything else but not you. Because this, this vessel is going to absorb the wrath of God so that it cannot hit you. You'll be safe and dry inside of God's mercy. If you enter in, if you believe, if you trust, if you hide, if you hold fast to God's appointed Savior, then you do not need to fear the wrath of God. Because while it's falling on everyone else, it will not fall on you. It will fall on the Savior instead of you. And even though you deserve the wrath of God, if you trust in God's Savior and hide in Him, you will only experience mercy. That's what happened to Noah. And just like Noah, God is inviting us to hide in His appointed Savior, to hide in in Christ so that we can be saved from His wrath. God is inviting us to let the wrath of God fall on Jesus instead of on us if we trust in Him and hide in Him and hold fast to Him. The sinfulness of sin, the severity of God's judgment, the sufficiency of God's mercy, and then finally, God's faithfulness to His covenant. Right, The moment Noah gets out of the ark, God says, I promise I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. And he never has. Thousands and thousands of years have gone by and God has been faithful to his covenant time and time again. And you can trust that God will always be faithful to his covenant promises. He will always be faithful to his word. When God promises that he's going to forgive your sin, you can trust him. When God promises that He will keep you for all of eternity, that He will never lose you, you can trust Him. When God promises that He will wipe away every tear, there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more suffering, you can trust Him. Because God is faithful to His covenant. God is faithful to His Word. And our task this morning is to come together as a body, and trust in God's covenant promises together. To listen to His Word, repent of our sin, flee from His wrath, hide in His Savior, and trust in Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before You this morning acknowledging the sinfulness of sin. Right, We we are not guilty of a series of uh, slip-ups or Uh, mistakes or oversights, Lord, we are guilty of high-handed rebellion and cosmic treason against your sovereign rule. And Lord, because of that, we are deserving of your terrible wrath and judgment. We realize that nothing happened to anyone on earth during the days of Noah that we are not also deserving of. 
And Jesus, we come to you. Just like Noah came into the ark, we come to you. We trust in you. We hope in you because we realize that you are our only hope. Jesus, either you save us or we will be destroyed by the flood of God's terrible wrath. Please save us. Please keep us. Lord, we trust you because you are faithful. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.